to turn with me, please, or just look on, or listen on, I mean, as, as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 18 through 23. Obviously not Leviticus, uh, but, well, let me explain that after I do the reading and as I begin the sermon. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Therefore, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you again for your word. We acknowledge that in your word is life itself and that we depend upon your word. Father, we want to be a church which submits to your word. We want to be people of the book. We ask you, O God, to thoroughly instruct us in it and to give us a love for your word. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As I say, obviously, um, not Leviticus. Uh, and, and one of the things I, I should also say is that I'm grateful for the liberty the elders and, and that the church gives me to preach uh, standalone sermons from time to time as I see fit. We don't believe in topical preaching or even expository preaching from occasional passages, but we do believe in preaching straight through books of the Bible. Uh, but at the same time, uh, there is the liberty if uh, let us say, and I want to be careful here, but if inspiration should strike me in my study that I might, uh, that I might preach something different. And uh, this is the first of a series of standalone sermons that I want to preach. Not in a series, but you should look for more of them in weeks to come, perhaps in the morning, perhaps in a good stopping point in Romans. I've got one uh, that I've been working on as well. I should also admit to you, that uh, this is adapted, in fact, this sermon from a sermon I preached in July of 2016, back when I preached 1 Corinthians. But I'm, I, I didn't just pull out of the drawer and said, I'm going to preach that. But that I have a real burden that I'm hoping to share with you. Something that, well, just the sense that I, I have coming back from General Assembly. I'm not responding to anything that happened there. I'm more sharing the burden that I have. And my desire that you would share with me in something as a Christian minister and Christian people. What we find in this text, well, you see what I've entitled is fools for Christ's sake. That's the burden. We find in this text something, uh, Paul saying something radical. Something that is almost nonsensical. Uh, it's, it's found in verse 18. If any, anyone among you seems to be wise in this age... Let him become a fool that he might become wise. And later on, uh, the, the title of the sermon, Fools for Christ's Sake, is actually what Paul says in chapter 4, verse 10. He says, we are fools for Christ's sake. This is something, as I say, which seems nonsensical, but it is something which I view as essential to the Christian outlook. And of the Christian ministry, Paul is speaking of the ministry, but I think we can broaden it out and say, this is how the Christian must think. That we must become fools if we would be wise. Here indeed is the thought we must embrace fully if we would be followers of Christ in a wicked and perverse generation. And until we do, 
I wonder seriously whether any of us can know what our true calling in the world is as pilgrims and wanderers and strangers in a foreign land. But the question which we have is what could he possibly mean by this statement? Again, if anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Let him become a fool in this world. Let him be regarded as a fool that he might be wise before God. Well, it's important to realize, and this is why I read from chapter 1, what is in many ways, chapter 1, verse 18, to the end of the chapter, and even in the chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, uh, it's important to realize that what he's saying here is, uh, according to the governing idea of the epistle, certainly the first four chapters, this sustained contrast between wisdom and folly and power and weakness. That is the language that he uses to describe the the gospel. It's the language that he uses to describe the Christian and his place in this world. So it is a kind of governing idea. And what Paul is doing here, as he does at the end of chapter 1, is directing this contrast in a pointed way to uh, his Christian readers. Did they really believe, and do we really believe, That God's wisdom was folly to the world. Or do we think that the world is ready to embrace Christianity? Number two, do we believe that the wisdom of this age is folly to God? It turns out that it isn't so easy to do, even for Christians. That it isn't just the Corinthians, but if we're honest, it is we ourselves and the church through the ages that has struggled greatly to accept her place in the world. A place of disdain and derision and of rejection from mankind and a willingness to embrace true wisdom solely from God and not from the world. But I think it's useful before we consider the sense of the words, especially verse 18, to ask why Paul would make a statement like this. And if we understand the overall argument he's been making, it isn't hard to see why he would say this. He's been accusing, if you remember 1 Corinthians at all, he's been accusing these Corinthians of acting foolishly by embracing the wisdom of this world and confusing that for Christianity. They were embracing in particular this party spirit and and thus rejecting Paul's ministry because they had embraced what the world valued, namely eloquence and the appearance of wisdom. And since these things were apparently lacking in Paul's ministry, which he does not deny, many had rejected his place among the apostles in favor of other ministers and hence the parties. That much is clear in chapter one. But what's so interesting to see is that the apostle doesn't feel feel dejected. I, I mean, he might have felt dejected, but he doesn't show it. He, he wasn't dejected, I would say, as, as ministers like myself tend to be when people reject me. But what Paul does is something that appears foolish to the world. And that is he addresses these Christians out of a true pastoral concern, pointing out what he saw as a fundamental flaw in their outlook as Christians. The reality, he says, now here's the heart of the pastor. He's actually able to say to them, you're acting like fools. 
Fools, not in the good sense, not in the Christian sense, but in the human sense. And that's not what you want. You want to be a fool, but for Christ's sake, not a fool of this age. And so Paul engages in a bit of irony, which he will do several times throughout this letter to highlight their folly. It's one of the the hallmarks of 1 Corinthians. It's the note of irony, uh, almost to the point of of absurd and and humorous at times. Uh, though, Though it isn't that here. It's more of a pointed irony. To really become wise, he says, you must become a fool. And there's no other way to be wise in the kingdom of God. And again, he later states this as fools for Christ's sake. I love that. I, I, I hope, I hope you, can, you can get a burden for that too. I hope you can say, I want to be a fool for Christ's sake like Paul. And once we see again that these two phrases, wisdom and folly, uh, envelop the broader section, really chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 4, uh, verse 10, if not beyond that, then we can see this as a key statement or thought that we must appreciate, if I may put it this way, the folly of wisdom and the wisdom of folly. I would never think to put it that way if God had not done so himself, but here is his very word, and I say it on the authority of his word, the folly of wisdom and the wisdom of folly. This is not me speaking in riddles. I'm not trying to confuse you. But this is, Paul says, the essence of Christian wisdom. This is how a man in this world or in this age becomes wise truly. And we can never be wise until we see this. The wisdom of folly and the folly of wisdom can be seen in four ways. There will be four points to the sermon. But first, I would ask you this simply. Do you know what it is to be counted a fool by this world for Christ's sake? Fools for Christ's sake. And is such a designation one that you are willing to bear? Are you willing to bear the reproach, the scorn, the derision, the rejection of the world? If only you might be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. One whom Christ will own when he brings his kingdom. I find it fascinating that the Apostle Paul would even be counted such by his fellow Christians. Not just by the world, but he was willing even in the presence of the Corinthians to be counted a fool. And not in the good sense. But what does it mean? And what does it involve? How does one become a fool for Christ's sake? Well, I view this passage as as the key and the program. And that's what I'm going to give you tonight, the program. Four points. The first is that the Christian is content to be regarded a fool by others. And that's certainly the sense of Paul's words in 4.10 when he says, we are fools for Christ's sake. That is, regarded as fools by others. Because of what he said in verse 9, the previous verse, for I think that God has displayed us the apostles last as men condemned to death, for we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and And to men, we are fools for Christ's sake. Spectacle to the world. It's clear that the fool for Christ, as Paul defines it, will suffer much for the sake of being a follower of Christ. Maybe not uh, to the extent of the apostles, almost certainly not. But nevertheless, his life will follow the same pattern and the same rule. 
He will experience the ridicule and the rejection of men. He will be hated. He will be despised. He will be maligned. And for this reason, because he rejects what the world accepts as true wisdom and vice versa, he accepts as true wisdom what the world regards as folly. And the world has little patience for such things. It is always inclined to make such persons pay for their rebellion to itself. There's a word for that today. It's cancel culture. You're going to pay. You're going to pay a price if you don't uh, uh, pledge your allegiance to the world and its values. But didn't Christ say that too? Not just the world. Didn't Christ say that there would always in this age and in this world be a cost, a price to pay for being his disciple? This isn't something new. The world has always demanded allegiance, and it does not take lightly men who, who will not play along. It, it, it shouldn't surprise you in light of that to see this is something Christians have always experienced. They threw the first Christians to the lions. So what Paul is saying is that to become a Christian, we must embrace what the world regards as foolishness and thus be regarded as fools by them. That is the key point for us to see, which explains his statement in, in, in verse 18. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he might become wise. What the world regards as weakness and folly, we regard as wisdom and power. That's what Paul was saying in, in chapter 1 in what I read earlier. The message of Christianity is the message of God's power made perfect in human weakness. Even the weakness, the human weakness of his own son on the cross. And therein is displayed the power of God to save and the wisdom of God. The world may regard it as foolishness and it does. And the reality is that everything about us now the world regards as foolishness and as weak. And from the standpoint of the world we do not dispute it. Nevertheless, we claim that we have found in Jesus Christ, his son, the wisdom of God and the power of God. And now we are aware of the conflict uh, that in which we are engaged with the world. As soon as we embrace the message of Christianity, we are engaged in the same battle that the apostle was engaged in and that Christ told his disciples they must be prepared to be engaged in. We have now become fools for Christ's sake. It is automatic. There is no way to escape this just as soon as you claim Jesus Christ is my Savior. There is no way, beloved, no way to remove the folly of Christianity in the world's eyes. And it's true, many have tried. Many today are still trying. But they've always failed. They've always given up too much. This is the, the lesson of the 20th century. And it's becoming the lesson of the 21st century. Those who do so always give up too much. And they always end up making Christianity resemble too much the system of the world in order to make it seem acceptable and respectable in the eyes of the world. They've forgotten what Paul said, that you must become a fool that you might become wise. And the path to true wisdom can never be found and the path of human wisdom. Why not rather, Paul says, embrace what the world regards as folly? 
Why not rather be counted fools by the wise men of this age? But the second thing we see, the second piece of the program, the way a man becomes a fool for Christ's sake, is in this, his desire and aim to know what God knows. To gain the divine perspective, as Cornelius Van Til said, to think God's thoughts after him. Now, that's just as important to the Apostle Paul's argument here. Not just that we would not seek to be wise in this age. Our interest in Christianity does not arise from a philosophical interest. But equally, on the other hand, that we would seek the wisdom that comes from God. And so Paul says in verses 19 and 20, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Paul's point which is a confirmation of the prior point in verse 18, is that God's evaluation of human wisdom is what should count in our books. And the divine evaluation of human wisdom is, verse 19, foolishness. Foolishness before God, which he confirms by these two quotations in verses 19 and 20. And so, uh, take the man... Who wants to be wise. Paul is saying the way to be wise. Is to know God. It is to get wisdom from God. And this is the wisdom of God. First of all. That man's thoughts are nothing compared to his. Do you want true wisdom? You've got to learn the mind of God. As it is revealed to us in the scriptures. And especially through the preaching of the apostles like Paul. You need, as Paul describes at the end of chapter 2, verse 16, the mind of Christ. And I ask you all, is that your interest? Is that what you want? Is that what you want to know? Namely, what God knows and what he thinks. And isn't that what Paul is encouraging us to do here? He tells us that the only way to become wise is to see that the wisdom of this age is folly. And this can only be done when we see things as God sees them. You see, again, that's his evaluation. It isn't ours. It is he who has determined that the wise of this age are fools. It's true. We may not see it. We may be enamored and impressed. But he does. He does see it. He sees the vanity and the folly of man's thoughts. And the man whose thoughts are patterned after God's. The man who has the mind of Christ will see it too. And so here is what we need as Christian people. We need to know the mind of God. We need to be aware, especially, Paul is saying, with his evaluation of things. We need his approval, not that of the world. That is the Christian interest. And so take as an example the doctrine of justification by faith, which is, I would say, the central concern of the gospel. The doctrine that answers the question, and this is the question that Paul is answering, is a question of evaluation. What does God think of me? What is his appraisal of man and thus of me? Well, I would say that the single greatest reason men fail to become Christians is that they do not care to ask this question. They sought wisdom in the path of this world. And they're too worried about the world and its assessment of things. But they never stop and ask, what does God think? What is his appraisal and his evaluation? What is his estimation of me and of this world? 
But do you realize that the man whose soul is burdened with a sense of sin, like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, for him it is the only question he has. He isn't worried about what the world has to say. His great concern, which burdens him, is simply this. What does God think of me? What is his evaluation? And here indeed Paul is saying is true wisdom, where true wisdom may be found. It is to concern yourself with God's evaluation of things. Paul himself will later say this. And again, remember, chapters 1 through 4 fit together. They're at the unfolding of the same thing. And we find Paul saying, in essence, what I've just been saying here. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I know of nothing against myself, yet I'm not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will bring both to light the the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsel of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. And it's the same point here. Look to God and seek to know what he knows Consider things as he sees them and as will become apparent, not now, but on the last day. What is it, uh, or, or how rather, does God evaluate the wisdom of this world? And for that matter, again, what does he make of me and of my sin? Can I ever know that he will accept me? Now, here is something uh, that should be apparent to us, and that is the simple question can never be answered by the philosophers of this age. The philosophers and the wise men can never tell you what God thinks in general, let alone what God thinks of you. He can never give you the mind of God. This eludes the philosophers. It escapes the academics. They may try, but they cannot answer it. What God thinks, not in such a way as to help the man in sin who has his burden. It can never, uh, this wisdom can never tell a man what God thinks of him. And so the philosopher cannot help him at all. All he can do is make a suggestion. But there's no authority. There's nothing of God in it. But, But still the question remains. Can we know the mind of God? Is such a thing even possible? Can we ever become wise in this sense? That we possess the very wisdom of God for ourselves? Can the burdened sinner get his answer? And if you go back to what Paul says uh, in the verses I read at the beginning, chapter 1, verses 18 and following, uh, which tracks so well with what Paul has been saying in Romans, the answer is he can. He can find the wisdom of God and he can know the mind of God and he can discover what God thinks of him. Oh, Paul says, here is indeed the wisdom of God. Here is the power of God. It is the provision and the promise of forgiveness from God himself. Not the mere suggestion of man, but the authoritative declaration of God himself. True wisdom. It's true. The world may not accept it. It never has. It regards the message of the cross as folly. But that does not stop the sinner from losing his burden. It doesn't stand in the way of this power of God to save. And anyone who knows it will say, I've ceased to care what the world thinks. All I know is that I once was blind, but now I see. I once had this great burden and this awful sense that God was against me. But now I know. 
having believed the gospel, that he is for me. I have come to know the mind of God, whatever whatever it is the world has to say. Here is indeed, Paul says, the rock of offense, the stone of stumbling, the point in particular which the world regards with such ridicule that God pardons the sinner freely by the death of his son, the message again of the cross. The justification of sinners by the blood of Jesus Christ freely poured out for them. And that whoever places his faith on Jesus, our bleeding sacrifice, will be saved. The man whose faith says this, here indeed is the wisdom and the power of God. And here, as I say, he finds the answer. That he was seeking, namely, what does God think of me? How does he regard my sin? And does he hold forth any provision for my salvation? Well, here is the answer. The cross, the wisdom of God, wiser than men, Paul says. You may not like it. In your flesh you may find the whole thing very foolish. But did you ever consider, Paul says, that it was you who was the fool? And that God's wisdom was greater than yours and his power. As Paul says, again, I read this just a few moments ago in chapter 4. I don't care what man thinks. I'm not interested so much in what the church makes of my ministry and my preaching. I know that ministers might have such a thought. In fact, he says, it doesn't even matter what I think. I don't even judge myself, he says. The only thing that matters is what he thinks. And that is the great issue that the last day will reveal but the glory of the gospel is that we don't have to wait for the last day. The last day will make it clear for all to see even our worst critics and our worst enemies. The glory of the gospel is that we might know even now today what God thinks of us. Here is my beloved, one whom I love, one whom I've justified freely by my grace, one whom I have intended from all eternity to forgive and to count as one of my children. Is there anything more precious than that? Anything more valuable and anything which you would be more desirous to know whether God might really accept you as one of his children. Well, go to the cross, go to the place of folly in the eyes of the world, and then you might know it for yourself. But as a third point, we see that to be a fool for Christ's sake involves regarding all men, even one's own self, as the poorest object of boasting. Verse 21, therefore, let no one boast in men, plain and simple. Men are not worthwhile objects of boasting, and that includes all mankind, every single individual man. I ask you, was there anything ever more unworthy of our boasting and our esteem and our fear than man? Do you not see it for yourself? How contemptible man really is, how foolish He has become in sin. Here is the admonition to he who would become wise. Truly stop glorying in man for what is man after all? He is nothing, certainly in the eyes of God, nothing at all. This includes all boasting in self, all thoughts of our own pretended glory and wisdom. Excuse me. It includes, Paul says, boasting in ministers. What the Corinthians were especially guilty of, 
And what we are guilty of uh, so often in the Internet age, when we act like our favorite ministers are the only real ministers and we judge everyone else by our favorite minister. Do you realize that's just boasting in men? That's exactly what Paul was saying not to do. That is the party spirit that he was condemning. It's also boasting in ourselves because we see our own evaluation as definitive. And thus, our favorite ministers become the standard of true ministry. It includes boasting in places of Christian learning. The seminaries, the colleges. This is exceedingly common, especially among ministers and among Reformed Christians. To measure the man by his place of learning, where he went to seminary. But I ask you, is that the measure, the true measure of the minister? Is that how we are to judge him, where he went to seminary? There are those, I tell you honestly, who regard certain men as lesser ministers because of where they went to seminary. Oh, he went to Greenville. He didn't go to Westminster. Or he went to Puritan. Or he, did, he, he didn't go to seminary. We have a minister in our presbytery who didn't go to seminary. Bill Wellesley, my favorite preacher here, I'm speaking like a madman, like a fool. Mart Lloyd-Jones, he didn't go to seminary. We make too much, I'm saying, of places of Christian learning. Obviously, let me say, a minister should receive the best theological education he may. But this is in no sense the measure of the minister. Nor is a man's training any indication of what kind of minister he will become. Only God the Holy Spirit can determine that. The measure of the minister is his spirit. It's the call of God. It's the anointing. That is boasting in God. But it also includes boasting in the men of this world, which we do implicitly when we cower at the criticism of the men of this age, when we're so afraid of what they might think or they might say of us. Paul is saying, what does it matter what men speak of us, what they think, what they say, what they post on social media, what articles they write, how they regard us in person? Indeed, we might wonder, should they speak better of us than our master, whether we are truly his? And so I say again, was there ever a poorer object of boasting than man? Man whom we know, though man does not know, who is lost in sin and rebellion. Man who sets himself up as wise, wiser than God himself, when in reality all man ever does is glory in his folly. But fourth and finally, and this is by far the greatest folly, and that is that he claims all things belong to him. Verses 21b through 23, he says, For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. Everything belongs to you. Here is the height of of Christian folly so far as the world is concerned. It is the confidence we possess with regard to the world itself. And that confidence is the secret to rising above ever-fearing man, ever-fearing the world and its rejection and its scorn. The confidence the believer possesses, all things are yours, Paul says. Everything. 
Everything the world regards as outside its control. Everything about which man boasts in his pretended glory. The things even which divide us. Those things which create division and dispute. The subjects about which man pretends to know. The issues of life and death, present and future, Paul says. Everything the world in its pretended wisdom seeks to understand. All of this belongs under the all things which are yours if you are in Christ. If you belong to him. Yes, Paul says, do not boast in man, not even in Christ's ministers. You who boast in Christ's ministers, have you begun once more to think like men? Have you forgotten what is true of you if you are his? For all things are yours and you are Christ's. Do you understand the argument? Paul says there's good reason for boasting. Just like there is the possibility held forth of true wisdom. But not in the things about which man is apt to boast. And here is where true wisdom appears. It is when a man is able to boast in the Lord and in nothing else. And as he does so to regard all things as belonging to him because he belongs to God. You see, boasting in the Lord means this. All things are his and I am his. I belong to him and therefore all things are mine. I ask you, is that wisdom or folly? To say, I belong to Christ and thus all things belong to me. Here is true boasting, Paul says, but it's not in man. It's boasting in the Lord and what he has made us. Why then such fear? Why such concern over what the world thinks? Do you see that that is just to invert the true state of things? It is to make the church subject to the world when when in reality the reverse is true. As Paul later says, and we saw the relevance of this this morning, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, why do you believers, why do you Christians take each other to court, seeing that you, the saints, will judge the world? Has he not set you above the world itself? Why do you continue to grovel beneath it, as though the world were your Lord and your master, and as though the appraisal and the valuation of the world was what counted in your life? Why do you care, Paul says, that the world regards the church as it does with such hatred and disdain? Is not the world subject to us? Have you seen it? Or do you still fear what man says or thinks? Will it not soon appear, Paul says, that we are its lords and masters along with Christ in whose life we are now hid? And so that leaves me now with one final question. And that is me sharing my burden with you and asking you if you will share this burden with me. And that is, do you belong to him? Do you belong to Jesus Christ? He says, it's the final thought. You are Christ's and Christ is God's. In other words, you belong to him. You don't belong to this world. If you are his, then you belong to him just as he belongs to God. You are God's. That is the essence of true wisdom. That is the essence of the Christian position. I am one of Christ's sheep. I am one of his followers. I am one of his dear little ones for whom he died and rose again. That is what it means to be a Christian. It is to belong to him as one of his disciples. And to be led by him through this sinful world of folly into heaven itself where he has gone before us. And are you content for him to be your power and your wisdom 
and your strength? Are you learning with Paul in the midst of your own weakness to say that his grace is sufficient for you? Or are you still looking for these things from man? Are you still expecting too much of this world and this age from the wise man? Are you still boasting in man and seeking wisdom from him? Or will you become with me, as Paul says, a fool for Christ's sake? If only you could know that you really did belong to him and that you were regarded by him as one of his sheep. Do you glory and boast to hear you belong to Christ and Christ has offered himself for the sins of men? And now I will boast in nothing else but in him. Amen. And let us return now our praise to God by standing together and singing hymn number 501.